The rest of us are going to be in Mark chapter 14. And we'll start in verse 12 and then we'll skip ahead a little bit. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, as we come to your word, I pray that you would help us to be faithful. God, we desperately need your presence. Holy Spirit, we need your presence as we read your word, as we seek to understand. And God, I I confess that I do not live up to what you have called me to live up to. But God, I know that you look at us not with shame, but through the cross you look at us with mercy and grace. And it is in love that you discipline your children and you bring us back to you. And God, you are doing a work in all of us who belong to you. And I pray that this morning would just be another part of that work. Thank you, God, that we get to gather together. Thank thank you that we get to worship you and read your word and encourage one another. Please be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Mark chapter 14, in verse 12, It says, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. One thing we have talked about all throughout the book of Mark, our study in Mark, has been how the sovereign God um, has, has set up all of these things, that everything is done intentionally and with purpose. That it's not accidental, that Jesus doesn't just kind of wander through life, just kind of reacting to what's around him. But that as surely as he created the the seas and the mountains and the land and the stars, as surely as he spoke those things into existence, he also laid out the steps of his life. And so everything is intentional. And everything has always been intentional. But everything seems heightened as he heads to the cross. We're now in the last couple of days of the life of Jesus and to see as he kind of zeroes in and focuses in, that's where we are right now. And this is a time of Passover. And so people are gathering in Jerusalem for um, the celebration of this feast. And so that's what they're asking. The disciples are saying, well, we obviously need to observe Passover. Like, where are we going to do that? And so he shows his intentionality by saying, go and you'll find this man with a jar. And, and, and we don't know for sure how, when or how Jesus set that up or, or what the situation is with that. But it was exactly as he said it would be. And so they go up into this upper room and they prepare the Passover feast. 
Now, if you're not familiar with Passover, um, that is the remembering of when God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. So remember God's people back in Exodus, they are slaves in, in Egypt. They, um, and, and Moses leads them out and calls to Pharaoh. He says, let my people go. And, and they, he, he tells Pharaoh, hey, we, we need to go. We need to go observe and worship our God. And, and Pharaoh says, no, we're not, we're not having that. And so the 10 plagues are visited on Egypt. And the final one was the death of the firstborn in every household. It's God's divine justice being exacted on all the people. And so what God does in, when he's going to do this is he instructs his people in Exodus 12 to gather together to sacrifice a lamb and to spread its blood over the doorposts of their home. And he said that over the night, this is what's going to happen. The firstborn in every household is going to die. But I, when I see the blood over your doorposts, it will pass over. Death will pass over your home. And so the people did it. They did it knowing that they were, they were called to do this as an act of faith in the one who says that he will do these things. Knowing that death would come to their household, either to a child or to a lamb. And so it happened. And God's people were released. And God delivered them out of Egypt. And God instituted the feast of the Passover to every year remember God's delivering them out of Egypt. And maybe you've taken part in something like that, like a, a Seder meal or like the Passover feast during Holy Week. It's a, it's a really incredible experience. As they, they, got, they gathered together and they ate this fe feast together, they ate bread that symbolized the affliction of their people in Egypt. They ate bitter herbs, remembering their slavery. They ate stewed fruit, remembering the, the making of bricks for Pharaoh. They drank wine that symbolized God's plan of redemption. And they ate roasted lamb to remember the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And if you have known that for a long time, it's very easy to just kind of nod through that. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I know. That's, yeah, that's really neat. But I would encourage you that it is good to just wonder how amazing this is and how God is telling this one story from beginning to end. And so this is what the disciples are doing. In that upper room that night, they are eating this meal. They're eating the same elements that they have eaten every year of their lives. They are reciting the same prayers and the same speeches that they have done every single year of their lives. It is a script that they are very familiar with. They could recite it by heart. They, just, they had done it every year. And so everything was going just like it should in the Passover. And then they get to the bread. The bread of affliction of God's people. And Jesus breaks from the script. He says in verse 22, And as they were eating... He took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. 
Now, everything about that would have made sense. The breaking of the bread, the blessing of it, that's all keeping it. But then when he hands it to them, he says, take this. This is my body. It is a startling departure from the script of Passover. Jesus is saying, this no longer represents your affliction in Egypt. It represents my affliction for you. Now when you take and eat this, remember that the Son of Man was afflicted for you. It is a bread of affliction for the people, but the bread of affliction is of the affliction of Jesus Christ. By his stripes, by his wounds, we are healed. The bread of his suffering to deliver us, not from the deserts of Egypt, but from slavery to sin. So he says, take, this is my body. And then he takes the cup. The cup that was always symbolized the redemption of God's people by God. At the end of, uh, at the end of every section, um, the people of God, as they observed Passover, they would take a cup of wine. And so there are four cups during the meal and they would, they would take each one. And each one represented God's deliverance and his redemption. And they would represent that with each cup. Each cup started, um, the phrases that were started with each cup were, I will take you out of Egypt. I will save you. I will redeem you. I will take you as a nation. And so they are hearing that. They know that that's what they're doing. But when Jesus takes this cup, he gives thanks and he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. In verse 24, he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And again, his disciples would have paused and would have listened to that. This was the wine that represents God's deliverance out of Egypt, God's salvation, God's redemption, God's forming of this holy nation. And Jesus is now saying that all of that is going to be fulfilled in his sacrifice, by his blood. He has taken us out of our slavery. He has saved us. He has redeemed us. He has adopted us as sons and daughters of God and formed us as a family. This is my blood of the covenant. And then he says, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. There's a lot of confusion over this because people say, well, then later, like when he raises from the dead, he eats and drinks. And so, so there's confusion over that. But what he was saying to the disciples, they definitely would have understood, which was simple, that this was a vow, an oath. It was, it was similar to like if we might say to somebody like, I will, I will do that if it's the last thing I do. And so what they would do is they would take a vow or an oath saying, I will not eat or drink until I have accomplished this thing. But it was serious. If you made an oath like that, the idea was that you would rather die than to not fulfill that promise. And it was always a covenant. That kind of oath was sealed with a sacrifice. The blood of an animal that was meant to represent my blood would be spilled if I did not fulfill my vow. And so when Jesus says this, 
He's saying, I'm making a covenant with you. I'm making a vow to you that I will fulfill my promises. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom. I will not eat or drink until I have fulfilled this for you. It is a covenant sealed with blood. This is what communion is. Communion is the remembrance of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made, the covenant that he formed and promised to fulfill, the oath that he took saying, I will deliver you. This is part of where we get our assurance of salvation that Jesus says, I will do this. Tim Keller points out that in this part that there's no lamb. The lamb, which was so key to the Passover feast, is not documented. And the way he puts it is there is no lamb at the table because the lamb of God is at the table. And in that moment, the disciples see that Passover was always pointing to Jesus. To this moment. Can you imagine being in the room? Can you imagine knowing that for thousands of years your people have celebrated this feast, have remembered God's deliverance, and now you're sitting in this room and you're looking at Jesus Christ and he is telling you it is fulfilled here. And he said from now on, whenever you do this, you do this in remembrance of me. That's what he's offering. The bread taking the affliction meant for you and me in his broken body. The cup of of wine or of juice, the fruit of the vine, sealing the covenant with his blood. And what he says here, don't miss it. He says, take it, eat. Take this. It's a choice. Will you receive it? You are entering into that covenant with him. You don't benefit from it if you don't partake in it. But it is a serious thing. It is not just merely a a ritual or or symbolism or just just a time of remembrance. It is actual participation with Christ. Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in the one bread. It's an actual participation with Jesus Christ. When you take the communion, when you take these elements, you are saying, I am unified with Christ. That is a serious thing. That's why it's good to pause before coming up. That's why it's good to not not just go through the motions, but to think about what you are claiming. Do you believe what you are receiving, the covenant that is being made with you? Or is it just a religious thing you do? Paul gives a stern warning for that. And 
Later in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. I'm going to take a long time to just completely unpack that, but can we just agree that that is a serious warning? That's why we do what we do, where we have people come forward, that we say that this is your choice. We don't pass it down an aisle as if it's just like presented to you, but that you come forward and, and say, I am entering into this. I know what I'm entering into. I also want our visitors here who are not there, who say, I don't know who Christ is yet. I'm not sure what I believe, that you would feel totally comfortable just remaining in your seats. We want to create that environment that you're not, you're not some kind of outcast in here. I, I respect that. I respect it when somebody says, I'm, I'm not there. Because that's communicating that you at least under, understand what we are saying here, what we're saying, how serious this is, and saying, that's, that's not me right now. Great. I'm so thankful that you're here. But if you would participate, consider. Consider what you are participating in. And it's important that we understand that it's not about our works. So the qualification to come forward and take communion is not that you've had a great week. Okay? It's not that you've been really knocking out of the park, obeying Jesus left and right, and you're just all, you know, you're just, you're just on fire right now. It's not that. It's a heart that just says, Jesus, I, I want you. I want the work that you are doing in my life. I want that covenant. I'm claiming that promise. In fact, it's often enriched by the, the realization and the repentance of saying, I am not. It is your blood that has sealed the covenant, not my works. If you think about it, as one, one author I read about this said, the original Last Supper is attended by traitors and cowards. It is a table not of merit, but of grace. Think about that. Every person around that table that we know who is there will abandon Jesus, except maybe one. And yet Jesus offers them. In fact, even offers it to the one who would betray him. So if you are here to receive the grace of Jesus Christ and participate in his life, then when it's time, we say, come forward. And now churches across the world, across time, have practiced this in so many different ways, done communion in different ways throughout the years. It's important to remember why are we doing it in the first place? What, where was it birthed from? And, and what, does it, what does it mean? Why are we participating in it and the seriousness of it? But often in churches, it always amazes me, and not, not just here, but in every church I've ever been in, what people get most riled up about are the methods, not what we're actually meaning when we say these things. And so it's always important for us to remember, like we need to remember what is it we're actually pursuing and then realize that we do methods trying to communicate that. But the methods are not the thing. And the truth is, I, I've never, 
seen a church, I've never been to a church that does communion the way that we would assume it was done in that upper room. Jesus sat at a table with his followers all gathered around and he passed bread and he passed a cup. And I have yet to be in a church, and I'm not saying it doesn't exist because I know it does across the world, but I have yet to be in a church, even when we were planting house churches and we were sitting in a room and we took communion, all of us circled together and we passed bread and we passed, we would either pass juice or we still had different cups or whatever the case was. It wasn't exactly like Jesus did it. And in most of our churches, it wouldn't even be feasible. Like we, we couldn't sit 200 people around a table in here. And we understand that. So how then do we determine how we do communion? Does it matter? Yes, it does matter. And so we have some guiding principles that, that feed into this, that mean something, that, that we're trying to capture of what Jesus was doing. It's important to remember, by the way, that the Passover was a family celebration. In Exodus 12, when God, God's instructions for Passover were given, they were instructed to sacrifice a lamb and roast a lamb. And he said, if your house is too small for a lamb, like if a lamb is too much for your house, then combine with other houses. Gather together, share a lamb. So a core principle of the Passover feast is the people of God gathering together, not pulling apart. It was not a time where they kind of all went into their individual rooms. It was a time where they gathered together. And if they didn't have enough people to share the land, they gathered more people together. Imagine a family celebration meal where people somberly eat in their own respective corners. Imagine I invite you over to Thanksgiving dinner. You come over to my house. And you enter my house, and everybody's really quiet. Everyone's got their heads hung low. And I instruct you quietly to go get a plate and go through the, the line and, and load up your, your plate with, with all this food. And then go find a space along the wall and sit and face the wall and don't look at each other and don't talk to each other. That'd be weird, right? I mean, judging by some of your faces, I do not want to go to your house for Thanksgiving because maybe, maybe that's not so weird. But I think it would be weird because the whole point of being together is to be together. It was a family celebration. And yet so often, that's what we've turned communion into. Communion is not a personal quiet time in the middle of a worship service. It's not a time to withdraw from the family. It's a time to be with one another, to engage with the family. So one of the guiding principles that we have here is we want to do communion in a way that pulls us together, not separates us. I mean, every form of communion that we see in Scripture would lead us to believe that they shared communion together, that being together was an important part of that. In Acts 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is in the context of them gathering together in one another's homes and in the temple courts. We see it in, in Acts 20 on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread. Which is really interesting. That's why they gathered together. We were gathered together to break bread, which is another word that they use, a phrase they use for communion. And Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Just let that sit there for a second. <laughs> but they got together to break 
the bread, to take communion. That's why they came together to do that. 1 Corinthians has a lengthy description of communion and is clearly instructions for when they get together and how they are to partake. And in that same, that 1 Corinthians 10 passage, again, look at what he says. The bread that we break, it is not a participate, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That is both Christ, his body, his broken body, his sacrifice for us. But then he says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So it's actual participation in the body of Christ. That as you participate with Christ through this, through communion, you are participating with the body of Christ. It's together. And of course, the original, as Jesus is passing the cup around the table, what do you think the rest of them are doing? They're watching each other. They have to be. Jesus breaks the bread and and passes it around. They're looking at each other. They're around a table. They're not avoiding eye contact. They're marveling at what's happening in front of them. And so the way we represent that here is to gather around tables. Is it perfect? No, it's not. I, I wish we could have just a giant table in the middle and we would all gather around it. I wish we could have an in-between, like where we have both services all gathered together around a giant table. But, but this is what we do to, to represent the gathering around the table of us being together. To make sure that it is a time not to withdraw, but a time to gather around, to look into the faces of strangers who have become family because of Jesus. And I know that that is uncomfortable for many. But I believe wholeheartedly that that is a crucial piece of communion. They did it when they got together. And they are together and they are family because of the blood of Christ. We have unity with one another because of our unity with Christ. So another principle we hold dearly is that how we take communion should signify that we are united together under one Jesus, one Christ. When he says in verse 23, he took a cup And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. So Jesus makes this clear, and in every account, it's the same thing. He took a cup. He gave it to them. They all drank from it. It, it, They didn't all just raise their wine glasses in a toast to Jesus. He took it, and he passed it. Why is that so important? Because there is one Jesus. Listen. Listen. One Jesus, one sacrifice for all people. That's important, don't you think? He pays for all the sins for all the people of all time. There are no longer multiple sacrifices that last for a little while until you have to make the next sacrifice. There is now one sacrifice that lasts for eternity. He sheds his blood once and for all. This is crucial. In Hebrews, it says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. 
And then later, a chapter later, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And again, as, Jesus, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, it's a participation in the body of Christ because there is one bread. We, are who, we, we who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bread. And this body has many members, but we are one together under one spirit, one Jesus, one sacrifice, all submitted to him. And that is represented by the common cup. That is why we have what we have when you come forward and and we dip that into the common bowl. The idea is we want to signify that it is one Jesus. And in our culture, I think that that is even more important. Look, growing up reading about idols, I remember as a kid, whenever we would, whenever the Bible would talk about idols, um, our in our children's ministry or youth ministry or pastors would would always be quick to say, "Well, it's not like idols like they had in the Old Testament. Like today, we don't have idols like that. We don't like create a, a statue or whatever. But it's it's other things that you pursue, like money or power or influence or whatever the case is. And that's true. Those are absolutely idols." But I think that today it's becoming more and more like the Old Testament. We aren't just looking to money as if it's a God. We're actually making our own gods in our culture. We're actually calling it God. You see the difference? Like for a long time, people would just be like, oh no, I don't have an idol. I don't worship God. And then they just pursue money with their life. And so you could look at that from the outside and say, well, money actually is your God. But if you said that to somebody, they would say, well, no, it's not. I just, I just like money. But now more and more in our culture, you have people creating their own idols and then actually calling it God. I mean, think about it. We preach the gospel of our man-made gods all over the place, and especially on social media. Just watch how many times people speak seemingly authoritatively on behalf of God, saying things that are found nowhere in the Bible. Well, what are they doing other than creating their own God and preaching their own gospel from their own created God? God just wants you to be happy, so do, do what you need to do. My God is, is, is totally okay. My God is, is fine with the way that you're living. My God would never judge you like that. My God would never do that. Overtly stating to the whole world that you can create your own God. I did it, and so can you. We live in an era where everyone wants to have their own individual relationship with God. And it happens in the church. Our own individual relationship with Jesus. Well, that may be the way that your relationship with Jesus works, but it's not the way my relationship works. You you may feel like that 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 part of the Bible is, is for you, but I don't think that that's for me. I don't need the church. We talked about this last week. I don't need the church to be a Christian, even though God commands us to get together. 
What a person is really saying in that situation is, I don't need the Bible. I've made up my own views of God. I am my own Bible, which means I am my own God. But we don't have our own individual gods. We don't have our own versions of Jesus. Jesus Christ was and is a real man, fully human, fully divine. He is objective, outside of ourselves. He created us, not the other way around. And it is the blood of that Jesus that redeems you and me. The blood of the Jesus that you and I like to create and that the world likes to create is worthless. But the blood of Jesus Christ is revealed in the scriptures promises us redemption and renewal and eternal life as adopted sons and daughters of God. That's what a common or one cup signifies. And so maybe more than ever, we have to make it clear that we are submitted to the God of the Bible, manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. We have to make an emphatic statement that communion is not about your own personal connection to God. It is about our unified submission under our Lord Jesus. And that's why we do the dippy-dip thing. Shockingly, not the theological term for that. It's intinction. I think dippy dip sounds better. But that's why we do it. We do it to represent the one cup idea. And it may not be the way we always do it. If you know anything about me, you know it's probably not the way we'll always do it. I'm always thinking about this. It's not my favorite. But I know that if we did common cup, you guys would revolt and run away. All right, so, so I, you got to figure that out in that culture. You just got to say, okay, well, then how do we signify this one cup? It just blows my mind that churches have, have no, had no issue like, in, in avoiding this kind of method, have no issue with ditching common cup, have no issue with ditching Jesus saying, this is my blood, take this cup, drink from it. No, no issue with that. We should. We should consider what does it say about our unity under one Jesus? And so it's not perfect, this isn't the only way to do it. If you've been to other churches that do it other ways, they're trying to faithfully do it the same way. I've taken it all kinds of different ways. I'm just helping you understand why do we do it that way? Why is it that important? And so we take it together, trying to represent from one Jesus, all of us together, one Jesus, one body, united. And finally, briefly, celebrating what he has done. I would say that the tone for communion biblically would be serious celebration. Like there are only two times where the Passover feast was somber as far as we know. The original one where I'm sure people were waiting to say, okay, God says he's going to wipe out um, the firstborn of every house and we're supposed to do this. And so there's probably this tension and anxiety waiting to see what is God actually going to do? Are we going to be delivered this unknown? But then every other Passover after that was celebrating what God had already done. And then again in the upper room, as Jesus talks about the one who would betray him, of him shedding his blood and his body being broken, I am sure that there was a level of, there was a tone that was somber 
But after that, the tone seems to be celebration. In fact, Paul, one of his big instructions is you're partying too much during this. Like you're getting out of control. And I think that what, what he's implying there is like it's, the celebration's okay, but you're doing it in an unloving way. And that's, that's not okay. But now we remember what Christ has done. And it is a beautiful thing. It's not meant to be primarily a time of grief, of hanging our heads in sorrow. It is a time of celebration, but it is a time of serious celebration. It's not, it's not a silly celebration. It's not flippant. But the thing is, is it's not supposed to be like a funeral. Because his body isn't there anymore. He's risen. That's to be celebrated. We are looking back at it through the lens of the resurrection. And yes, we remember his sacrifice. And yes, that creates a seriousness in us as we participate. We consider participating in the death and the life of Jesus. But it is a celebration of what he has done in the resurrection and what he has promised he will do in eternity. So we have hold that intention. And the way I thought about it, I was trying to think of an illustration or, or a parallel for that. And the closest thing I could come up with, and I'm not, I don't know if this is the best one or not, but it just gave me a picture of like a wedding. So if you've been to a wedding, a wedding is a celebration, correct? You're celebrating the union of two people under God with people who love them and care for them, who are all gathered together to celebrate. But the celebration doesn't look like a five-year-old's birthday party, right? That would be weird also. Like as we're sitting here, we're looking at one another and we're celebrating this. We don't have people in the back corner like hooping and hollering and dancing around. You don't have people playing dodgeball over at this side or whatever. Like you don't have those things. Because it's a serious celebration. It's a weighty celebration as you're considering why are we gathered together? We're celebrating what Christ has done for us and how that is represented in marriage. And so if you think about a wedding ceremony, if you've been to one that is really Christ honoring, it's often filled with people looking at one another with meaningful looks, remembering maybe their own wedding or remembering what Christ has done in them and how they are the bride of Christ. It's serious celebration. So when we come forward and we come together, it's, it's not a time to catch up on how everyone is doing or to hear how your week has been. It's not a time to, to joke around and, and goof around. It's not the same as like a meet and greet time. Like if you've ever been in a church, like, okay, now we get up and we go around and we shake hands. Hey, how's it going? So good to see you. It's not that. But it's also not a time to hang your head in shame. Is a time to seriously look at one another and rejoice in the sacrifice that was made for you and me. A sacrifice that redeemed each one of us and bonded us together as family. To look at one another as we take the elements and say, Jesus did this for you. Jesus did this for me. 
To take the bread and say the affliction meant for us has been taken by Jesus in his broken body. To dip it in the juice that represents his blood that should have been our blood shed, but it is shed by Jesus to seal God's covenant with us. He has paid the price. We have been united with Christ and thus to one another. So we're going to have the band come up. And when they play, I'm going to ask you to sit and to consider what you are doing when you take communion. And if you are participating in the body of Christ, the death and life of Jesus Christ, and you are acknowledging that then I am participating with the body of Christ together, then come together. Gather around, crowd around the table. If you come up to the table and you realize that you're the only person up there, go around to the other side of the table and invite others in. Look at those strangers who have become family because of Jesus and with serious joy. Take communion. For this is Christ's body broken for you. And this is Christ's blood shed for you. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, and we actually come forward to participate in the death and life of Jesus, I pray that we would be mindful of that, that we would repent of our sin and repent of how we have created our own gods, how we have tried to be our own God, how we have done things our own way, how we have put words in your mouth and tried to reconcile or justify all of that. God, we just lay it all down. Because we know we do not come forward to this table, God, because of our works. We come forward because of your work. It is not a table of merit. It is a table of grace. Offering us that which we could not secure for ourselves. I pray, Father, that we would then come forward in serious celebration. That we would rejoice with one another. That our Jesus lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we deserved and has risen, freeing us from the slavery and bondage of sin, redeeming us and forming us as his family. And for those this morning who have never done that and have never confessed that, God, I pray that in this moment that if they would confess that, they believe in their hearts and confess with their mouth that you are Lord, they would know that 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 is all is required of us to lay everything down and to come to you empty-handed and receive the gift of grace. I pray that they would do that this morning. I pray we would rejoice together as a family united under you. One sacrifice, one body for all.